Thank you, guys. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and go to Luke chapter 8. We're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Luke this morning. We've been uh, calling this stories because we've been looking at different stories in the life and ministry of Jesus. And we've got three stories to look at today. Uh, we'll probably go through the first two a little quickly because the, uh, the third one is actually my favorite story in, uh, in all of the Gospels. So I want to I make sure I have plenty of time for that. Uh, but I'm actually just going to read the first few verses to, uh, to get us started, and then we'll summarize some things as we go. But I invite you to stand, and we'll read Luke chapter 8, verse 22 through 25 together. And then I'd like to pray for us. It says, One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down from the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and thank you that we can open it this morning freely and study it together. I pray that you would unite our hearts around it, that it would speak to us, that your spirit would be active among us, that your spirit would speak, to, speak through me and to me this morning as I try to share these thoughts with our church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Right, you can go have, an, have a seat. I was telling the, uh, the guys in our men's Bible study this week about a, a book I read a couple months ago called uh, Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, some of you guys may have heard of that. It's uh, written by a guy who grew up in eastern Kentucky, not exactly the part of Kentucky I'm from, if you happen, happen to read it. But uh, he grew up in eastern Kentucky and um, is now a lawyer. He went to Yale. He's now a lawyer. And so it's kind of his story of how he grew up in uh, a part of the world and among people who, who don't typically end up being lawyers and don't typically end up at Ivy League schools. And it's kind of his reflection on, on his past and, and sort of the, the perils of his experience there. He had a, a pretty rough life that uh, quite honestly is not all that uncommon for that region. Uh, he had an absent father, so there were men kind of in and out of his life throughout his childhood. His mother was an addict, and so he was constantly dealing with her ups and downs and he was surrounded by poverty and drugs and this real sense of hopelessness and, and this knowledge that most of the people he could count on in this world were the people in his own community and his family. And, and yet they were pretty much powerless to, to give him a whole lot of help for the future. And so as I was reading the book, I was just noticing as a young man, and, and he's you know, thinking about all this retrospectively, as a young man, as a child even, he really had two categories of people in the world. Uh, there were those, those people who loved him, who, who cared about him, who knew what he was going through. And then there, there were those people in authority who could have actually helped him but didn't know about him or didn't know how to help him. And so he, he tended to kind of view people in one of those two categories as a child. There, there were people who cared about him but couldn't help and then there were people who could have helped but didn't care about him. And it was fascinating to me because uh, about this time last year, I read a book about a, a different guy uh, who, who grew up in inner city Detroit 
a, a young black guy who grew up in a, a, a poor black neighborhood, and he said a very similar thing about his neighborhood, that the people in his area understood that there were people around them who knew them well and cared about them, but they couldn't help them. They lacked the resources to do a whole lot about their situation. And then there were people who had the resources but didn't know them and didn't care about them. And it just struck me as I was reading it how common that is. You know, whether you grew up in the hills of Kentucky or in the inner city of Detroit uh, or somewhere in between vastly different, we can all understand those categories that we, we tend to separate love and authority. And the great message of the gospel, in part, is this combination of those two things. And I think that's especially what we see here in these stories. We see this man, Jesus, who is going to speak with utmost authority over things that we would not expect a man to have authority over. And yet this same man is going to speak with love that we cannot imagine a man to have for other human beings. And so in, in Jesus, love and authority meet. He's, he's the Lord of all, and yet he's the Lord who loves each and every one of us. And I, I want us to try to hold those two ideas in our mind as we look at these stories, because it, it really brings out the richness of what's going on. And so we're going to look at three different stories, and with each one, I, I want to emphasize Jesus' authority over certain things. And so in that story we just read, uh, we read about how Jesus is the Lord of the natural realm. Uh, he and his disciples are sailing across the Sea of Galilee. All these stories kind of happen around that sea, and a great storm threatens their boat. Uh, you can imagine how terrifying this would be. Uh, first century Galilean fisher uh, fishing boats were, were not exactly modern cruise ships. You know, I mean, this, uh, this would have been a perilous situation, even for guys who spent their lives on these waters. And so uh, they're pretty frightened. They go to wake Jesus. He's not bothered at all. He's napping in the back. They go to wake him. They seek his help. And you guys know the story with a single word calms the storm. Mark tells us, he says, peace, be still, and instantly the wind dies down, the waves cease, and there's, there's a calm. It's all over as soon as Jesus speaks a word. You know, the, the disciples in the moment, they felt very afraid. They felt very alone, but Jesus was with them all along, and he wasn't troubled in the least. You see his authority in that. And I was thinking of this this week of just how, you know, different people can be in the same setting and have different perspectives about it. I don't know if you, some of you guys maybe had the same experience on Thursday morning, but we had kind of a storm where I live on Thursday morning. And so uh, I, I, was, I was up working on the sermon. That went, that's usually when I'm doing my study. And uh, it, it was lightning outside. There's loud thunder. And I was reading about Jesus owning this storm. And I was just thinking, wow, it's, it's kind of neat to look out my window and, and see all this stuff going on and imagine somebody just speaking a word and it's and it stopping. And, you know, from the confines of my living room, it wasn't all that frightening, but it was just kind of cool to think about. And then all of a sudden there was this big clap of thunder and one of my kids came out. You know, it's way before they would normally get up. Another clap of thunder and another kid came out. Pretty soon I had three kids on the couch and Bible studies over and if the sermon's bad today, maybe we can blame the storm on Thursday a little less time than normal. Uh, but, you know, the four of us, me and my kids, we were all going through the same storm. You know, I was old enough and wise enough to realize that's not going to come in through that window. And uh, I'd checked the weather and it was going to end in about 30 minutes. It was, it was not that big of a deal to me. Uh, but the kids were terrified. 
you know, I mean, they came flying out of the room and, and snuggled up to dad on the couch. You know, same, same storm, but, but different perspective, right? And so we see the same kind of thing here. And what's fascinating to me about this story is that when Jesus calms the storm, it doesn't actually stop the disciples' fear, right? It, it actually just relocates it. Look, look at that in the text. At the beginning of the story, they fear the storm, right? They are fearful of the wind and the waves. By the end of the story, in verse 25, it says, they were afraid and they marveled. And now all of a sudden, they're afraid of the one who's commanding the wind and the waves. You see, when, when Jesus spoke that word and they recognized his authority and they, they were able to see this man in our boat is the Lord of the natural realm. He commands the wind and the waves. It didn't make them less afraid. It made them actually, I think, more afraid. But now instead of fearing that storm, they're now fearing the God that's in the boat with them. And they ask themselves that question, who then is this man? And I think that's kind of the question that hangs over the text as we go into that next story. So in the first story, we see that Jesus is the Lord of the natural realm. In the second story, we see how he's the Lord of the spiritual realm. And I'm going to summarize some of this. But basically, Jesus and his disciples, they make the journey across the sea. They get into Gentile country and they immediately meet this guy who's possessed by demons. And we could say a lot about uh, first century perspective on demon possession and, and what was going on here. I think it's best to really just receive these things at face value. Uh, that's, that's what the ancients thought was going on in this moment. And, and as the story progresses, it seems like there's, there's a legitimate spiritual warfare going on between something that was inhabiting this man and Jesus as he encounters him. What's fascinating is the somethings in that man know exactly who Jesus is. They recognize his authority. So you can see that in verse 28 there. It says, the man fell down at their feet and the demon cried out from within the man, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. See, sometimes the demons understand more than we actually realize. Uh, in C.S. Lewis' little book, The Screwtape Letters, where he's got those fictional demons having conversations uh, back and forth, one of the things they say is, it's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their mind. And, and one demon says to the other, in reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. You know, sometimes the work of the enemy is actually to keep us from acknowledging things and realizing things that he himself knows. Right? So these demons don't want the people around them or even us today to understand what's going on in this story. They know his authority, but they don't want us to see that. But as the story progresses, it's, it's kind of undeniable. All right, so Julia, verse 31, this conversation begins and uh, Jesus asks, what is your name? The demon says, legion, for there are many here. So Jesus is outnumbered, many demons, one Jesus. That's not going to matter at all. And then they begin to beg for mercy. They say, uh, cast us in this herd of pigs here. And there's a herd of pigs. Would you, would you put us there instead of casting us into the abyss? And Jesus agrees. Again, speaks a single word. And the demons leave this man who has formerly been wandering the tombs and ripping his clothes and this kind of superhuman strength to break, it, break his shackles and all this kind of thing. The demons leave him and they enter the pigs. And the pigs, as we know in the story, go off the side of the, the cliff 
quickly. And uh, I don't know all that's going on there. I'll be honest with you. I think that's one of the weirdest scenes in the Gospels uh, where Jesus is just kind of chatting with these demons and they ask him for something and he agrees. I don't know why he didn't just like TKO right there and do something stronger. But I, I think some of what was happening maybe is that he's trying to give some kind of visual demonstration that what he's saying he has done, he has actually done. Right. So I, I think he wants people watching this, and we're going to talk about those people in a second, to realize that he really does have authority over these demons to the point that he can just relocate them like that and send them into a herd of pigs. Now, it'd be easy to say, well, this person has a demon and now they're over here, right? And, and you would go, well, sure, you can say whatever you want about the unseen. How can we prove that well, maybe Jesus is going to prove that by sending those demons into a herd of pigs. This previously docile herd of pigs all of a sudden get scared and jump off a cliff, right? So anybody watching recognizes okay, something just happened here. When that man spoke, something crazy happened. And so I think he's trying to make it clear that he has indeed authority over the spiritual realm here. I think he's also trying to make it clear that this man is now free from torment. He's not who he used to be anymore. And as the, the story goes on, we see the man, he, he's cleaned up, he's, he's clear-headed, he's able to sit and converse with Jesus. And, and it's clear that his life has been changed. Jesus has done something to change him in exercising his authority over the spiritual realm. And yet, uh, and yet the people who see this reject what they see. Okay, so look down in verse uh, 34. We'll see their reaction. So it says, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, now those are the guys who had the pigs, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and they found the man. Now remember this guy was well known for being demon possessed and crazy. They found the man whom the demons had, from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. And, and you expect it to say, and then they believed that Jesus was the Son of God, right? But it doesn't say that. It says, and then they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. So this is what happened. Jesus spoke, the demons went in the pig. And then all the people of the surrounding country asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So again, Jesus goes along with the request. He gets in his boat and he returns. So it's, it's kind of interesting here. At the beginning of the story, those, those crowds, those people, they feared the demon-possessed man, right? By the end of the story, kind of like the disciples, but not the same, they fear the man who's able to possess authority over the demons, right? But for the disciples, that fear drew them in. They realized the guy on our boat is in charge of the wind and waves. For these people on the countryside, it it caused them to want to drive Jesus away. They recognized his authority. They recognized his power. They want them out. They want him out of their town. All right, so fear does not always lead to faith. And I think this gets at just that reality that it's hard for us to receive love from someone who, whom we realize is so much stronger and greater than us, right? I mean, that's the plot of like every superhero movie. Right, or at least the one I've seen, Incredibles. Right, the the, the main one. That's the main one, right? The Incredibles. Um, in in just about every superhero movie, there's like the mis misunderstood, all powerful superhero. You know, he or she's doing great things. People think they're actually the bad guy, 
But what I think the directors and writers are playing off there is it's very difficult for us to receive love from someone whom we realize has utter authority over us. Because we want to think of love as this kind of equal ground that we're passing back and forth. It's, It's a different kind of thing to put ourselves beneath someone to realize he could do anything he wants with us. He's all powerful. He's Lord of all. And yet he loves us. And so the disciples are afraid of him and I think lean in because of that. The people in, Gen- in the country of the Gentiles here, they're afraid of him, and they, they push him away. They, they don't want anything to do with him. So the first story we see, he's the Lord of the, uh, phys- or the natural realm. The second story we see, he's the Lord of the spiritual realm. And then this third story, I want to spend a little more time on it. He's the Lord of the physical realm. And so um, there are actually two stories here. I'm going to summarize a little bit of these as well. But if you look at verse uh, 40, you get a sense of what's going on here. Jesus returns back across the sea. A crowd welcomes him. And this important guy named Jairus comes up. He's a ruler of the synagogue. And he falls at the feet of Jesus, it says in verse 41. And he implored him to come to his house, for he had only one daughter, she was about 12 years old, and she was dying. Right, so that's all the details we need to understand. This is a big, big deal. Important guy's only daughter is on her deathbed. So Jesus immediately begins the process of getting to her as quickly as possible. But then on the way, there's an interruption. And this woman comes up. Uh, she's had this condition for about 12 years where she's had this discharge of blood, and she's, she's desperate, and so she grasps at his garment, And the text tells us immediately, as soon as she touches his garment, she is healed. And then perhaps the more amazing thing in the story happens in verse 45. Jesus stops. And what he's doing? He's on his way, a little girl on her deathbed. He stops and he says, who is it that touched me? And and Peter's like, Jesus, there's there's a crowd all around you. Everyone's touching you. I mean, we've got to hurry, right? Remember, there's a little girl dying. We've got to get to her, you know? Jesus wants to know, who touched me? I perceive that power has gone out from me. And in this moment, I think we get something of the character of Jesus as well as his, his utter power over the elements. It's helpful to stop for a second and imagine not just what, what is Peter thinking as he's kind of rushing Jesus along, but what is Jairus thinking? Remember Jairus, his, his little daughter is dying. He's, he's come to meet Jesus. As soon as he got off that boat, he's rushing her to the house. And now Jesus is just stopping to get to know somebody. Right? And, and we've got this, this woman who has been sick for years with a non-critical condition, right? And, and she's already better. She's already been healed. And Jesus is stopping because he wants to get to know her. I think if you're Jairus, you're asking, what in the world are you doing? And I think if you've been walking with the Lord very long, you've experienced seasons like that. Or you want to know, God, why are we waiting? Why aren't the prayers we're praying getting answered? And why aren't the things we're longing for coming to pass? And for for us, this this story coincides with a particular season. Uh, I've told uh, many of you guys a little bit about this. Uh, We have a a big gap between our Haddon and Anna. Um, We had a a miscarriage shortly after Haddon was born. And then uh, we we were praying that the Lord would, would give us another child. We were not getting pregnant, and um, it, it's, it's easy to summarize that now. It was about two years of our life. It takes me about 10 seconds to tell you about it, but it was miserable. It was miserable. It was such a hard, hard season, just begging God to bless us with a child. And month after month, feeling like he was just not answering that. 
And around the time we were going through that, we got an opportunity to go and hear uh, Tim Keller. A lot of you guys would know him. Um, he, was, he was a pastor in New York. Um, is a pastor in New York. He's about to retire. Uh, we, got to hear him, we got to hear him preach. He was in a, a book tour for this book. It was called King's Cross at the time. I think now it's called Jesus the King. They, they republished it. Uh, but it's on the Gospel of Mark. And the night that we came to hear him preach, uh, he talked about this story. And he called this little moment here uh, one of the maddening delays of God. That phrase always uh, is stuck with me. That it, we, we go through these times in our life as believers uh, where we experience maddening delays with our God, like Jairus here, uh, like my wife and I, like, like whatever you're going through right now, where you're just begging God to do something that you really believe to be good. You're going, Lord, why? Why not? Why not now? And we took such comfort that night from really just seeing some of the details of this text, because when you think about this on the surface, it seems crazy that Jesus stopped to care for this woman. It seems crazy that he would stop to get to know her. But when you stop and think about the woman a little bit, it makes just a little bit more sense. You see that the text tells us she's been suffering for 12 years. And again, that doesn't take long to say out loud, but imagine 12 years of a physical ailment. The text tells us she had no real hope of a cure. She had spent all her money on physicians and they had told her there's nothing we can do. This particular condition would have rendered her ceremonially unclean among the Jews. This is a religious problem. It's a social problem. She's basically like an outcast in society. I mean, you see her kind of sneaking up to Jesus. She's not even willing to come up and, and put herself in front of other people. You see, Peter and Jairus wouldn't have known any of that. All they saw was an interruption. But Jesus knew her story. Jesus knew exactly what she had been through. He knew exactly what she needed. And so he stops, not merely to heal her body, but to bring comfort to her soul as he restores her dignity. And so you, you look at the text, and she comes to him in verse 47, and she's trembling. She, she fell down before him and told everybody what happened, how she had been immediately healed. And then Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You see, he had already healed her physically, but here he's restoring her spiritually. He wants her to know, you're not just better. You're a daughter of the king. And you see that combination of love and authority in the person of Jesus right there in that moment. He has the authority to stop a disease on his way to stop death. But he has the love to, to stop and care for this woman, to restore her dignity. I remember when Tim Keller was talking that night, he said, uh, God answers the prayers that we would pray if we knew what he knew. It's always stuck with me. God answers the prayers that we would pray if we knew what he knew. See, we went through that long season of waiting. Uh, we eventually uh, started an adoption process, and then we got a little surprise that we named Anna. And uh, we think all the time about how she was very much worth that wait. And, and God had full authority over what was going on there. Uh, he, he knew exactly what our days were going to bring us. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't know. You know, we were, we were in the dark. Like, like Jairus here, we were being called 
to trust. And many of us are in that moment this morning. You're waiting on the Lord in some way and you're wondering, what are you doing? And hopefully the story gives you a sense of how trustworthy our God is. But the story's not over. Uh, that's, that's actually the, uh, the interruption in the middle of the larger story. And verse 49 kind of brings us back to reality because you guys remember what the story's about? It's about a little girl that's dying. Right, and, and verse 49 is a jolt of reality. This guy comes from the house of the ruler of Jairus and he says, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Hope, hope is lost. It's, it's over. Right? Jesus has lingered too long. But Jesus responds, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And we've seen that fear in each of these stories. The disciples feared the storm. The villagers feared the demons. The woman feared rejection. Now Jairus and this crowd, they fear that hope is lost, that a little girl has gone to the grave. And yet Jesus is not in any way bound by their lack of faith. Don't miss this in the Gospels. There are people today who will tell you the opposite and they are lying to you. And and someday when you hear somebody in, in an effort to comfort you, tell you, if you just had a little more faith, maybe God would do this. I want you to have the resources to say, that's an absolute lie. That's an absolute lie. God is not dependent on our faith in order to act. He's the Lord of all. The Gospels are full of stories of people who do not believe Him, do not trust Him, do not understand Him, and He does remarkable things in spite of it, and we're no different. But he's not subject to our timetable time either. All right, so we have, these, we have these interruptions. We have these moments of waiting. But I think the way this story ends reminds us that he, again, is worthy of our trust. And so Jesus goes into the house and verse 54 takes a little girl by the hand. And he says, child, arise. And the, the Greek there is a, kind of a diminutive form, like you would say to a little kid if you were like waking them up from a nap. This isn't a loud beckoning, like when he beckoned Lazarus from the grave. It's just a soft whisper. No, honey, it's time to get up. But it illustrates for us the power of Jesus over the grave. When we say he is Lord of all and he has authority, this is how strong his voice is. Honey, it's it's time to get up. So all of these stories, when you put them together, they drive us to ask a single question. And it's a question I want to lay before us this morning as we wrap up. Why would we ever doubt a God like this? And why would we ever doubt a God who is greater than our greatest enemies? He's he's Lord over nature, over demons, over death, over disease. He's not limited by our fears. And he's very much worthy to be feared. Every story ends with someone recognizing his great authority, except for this one. I think Luke is a master narrator here. He's leaving the door open for us to draw a conclusion. Remember the disciples? They realized this man is all-powerful, and so they came closer. Those people in the fields, they realized this man is all-powerful, and they ran away. Luke leaves the door open here at the end of this story and says, what are you going to do? This man is all-powerful. Are you going to come to him? Are you going to push him out? Are you going to trust him? Are you going to doubt him? But as you make your decision, remember how much he loves you. There's no dichotomy in the person of Jesus between love 
and authority. The one who has the power to do the most good for us is the one who knows ultimately what is good for us and wants what is good for us. And again, the cross is where that love and authority finally meet. So when we gather around the communion table each week, we're reminded of that. Uh, we're brought to that moment again where, where we see that the one who is most capable of helping us has, has done the greatest act in order to, to bring us to himself. He has given his life, the ultimate display of love, freely offering his life, the ultimate display of authority so that we can come to him. So I'm going to pray for us, and uh, I don't know what you're going through this morning, and this is kind of a weird day with all the weather stuff going on and everything, but um, I never want to miss a moment to um, just be challenged by the Word of God. And so I, I pray that we take a moment to consider these things and, and ask yourself that question. Uh, maybe it would sink in uh, in a new way today. Why would I ever doubt a God like this? If you're with us this morning and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then um, we'd ask you not to participate in communion. That's a, a family thing for us. Uh, but I would ask you, why would you resist a God like this? Why would you want to be like those people in the field, shoving him away uh, in face of all that he offers? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are sovereign over our lives. Thank you that you possess authority over all things. Thank you that no matter what we're facing, uh, be it literal or figurative storms, be it disease, be it death, be it uh, financial challenges, be it personal, interpersonal, relational challenges, Lord, whatever we may be facing this morning, remind us afresh that we can trust you. We have no need to doubt you. You have authority over all things. And yet, Lord, we know that we are yours and you are not ours in the sense that you do not answer to us. Uh, and you, you, uh, you can work and you will work on our behalf, but you may not always do it on our timetable. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be patient with that. For those of us who may be waiting right now, I pray that you would help us to wait well, help us to wait in faith, and help us to wait never once doubting your love. Lord, thank you for, thank you for expressing and showing your love to us and, and dying for us on the cross. And we, we go to the communion table now to remember that and to celebrate that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.